Hello again, and welcome back to Firing on Film. Today I've been joined by Oliver and Holly to share our top 10 musicals. You know the disclaimer by now, our discussion was recorded over a video conferencing app, so I can only apologise for any distortion or difference in the usual audio quality. That being said, let's get into it. So, usual rule, no spoiling your list if a film comes up earlier in someone else's list. Before we get started, honourable mentions. So I've put on my honourable mentions... Footloose has been in my head weirdly, but it's not really a musical. Um, and I think that's just because I went to see it in London and that was a musical. And I thought that when they were remaking it, they would have just remade it as the musical. So discount that. Mm. I've not included any of the Disney Renaissance films that we've recently just had a very long chat about. And I want to throw in a mention for Sing Street, which is a film that might have fallen into my top 10 had I seen it again more recently. But Drive It Like You Stole It is a real earworm. Um, so I recommend going and listen to that. Greatest Showman has a much better soundtrack than is of the film. I much prefer the songs than the film. So that's why it's not on my list. And I have fought with myself and I've decided not to include Hamilton because Hamilton easily would have been my number two, maybe even number one. But it's a recording of the Broadway show. It's not a film. So I've not included it. And, and it's not Ollie, that good. Shoot your face. And Ollie. Just off our previous conversations, I, I think if I was to watch it again, Rock of Ages might be whirling around my honorable mentions, maybe even my number 10, just because I like the music from it. But mm. they're mine. So, I, Holly, if you want to go with yours. Um, I usually have some honorable mentions, and I, I don't think I really do now. I, I had a big, long list of okay. musicals that I like, and I've picked out my favorite 10. Um, I think maybe I might add something like Spinal Tap, which isn't obviously a musical, but has fantastic music and it is original music, um, but not a musical because it, it, the music isn't driving forward a plot or it isn't the th inner thoughts of the characters. Um, so yeah, maybe that. Keep that one in your back pocket for when we do one on soundtracks. Fab. Yes. Go on then, Ollie. Okay. Um... Chicago, I've put on there. I don't particularly like the musical, but I remember the first time I watched the film, I was blown away by how good it was. I think subsequent viewings, I've been like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. But that first time I watched it, it was a proper spectacle. Um, I have put Frozen on there. I think it gets a lot of hate because it was massively over-marketed, but it's, it, when you go back and watch it, I have a lot of fun with it. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, I put that on there because I did enjoy the film, but mainly for Rami Malek's performance. And I don't quite count it as a musical because it's not like the characters burst into song in the way that they would in a regular musical. Uh, Labyrinth, I think we've mentioned before. It's mainly David Bowie's songs that make it enjoyable as a musical. Dream Girls is on there just because I haven't seen it. And I think I would enjoy it. And maybe if I'd watched it, it would make it in my top 10. Uh, one that I've had to I've had to demote to as well when I realised two more musicals existed in film format. One of them is Rent, and I love Rent. I do, especially the film. I think the film is better than the stage show. Um, but there are songs in the soundtrack where I do get a bit bored. The songs that I love in Rent are some of the most moving things I've ever heard. And I suspect we're going to be hearing more about those songs. Like, And I will wax lyrical about whoever might be bringing it up then. Um, and one that, I, that saddens me a bit more, and it might do for you guys, Grease. Grease was originally in my top 10 because it's fun and cheesy. It's your classic, like, 
more contemporary uh, film musical and it was up in there but like I said there were two musicals that I was made aware of <laughs> I remembered existed I was like oh god I can't not have them in there um so yeah and that had to be dem- there's one as well that I've realized is the one you're talking about is going to be on air and I'm going to bring it up because I do I do kind of love it as well but I won't spoil its inclusion until it comes up right I think I'm going to have a little bit of an education here because and I mentioned this to both of you previously, the earliest film I have on my list was released in 2005. Mm. The latest film is 2019. So we're very much contemporary stuck. To say that I've got 10 films from the past, like, what, 15 years? And I think you two are going to go much more old school with a mix of maybe some more contemporary ones as well. Because I think, thinking about this time period and the time period that I'm going to be talking about my films from, this is when I got into musicals, and I think that's maybe why they're all relatively recent. Um, yeah, and they're just ones that have released songs that I quite enjoy. Um, so we're going to kick off with our number 10s. Holly is going to start us off with her number 10. Crap. Uh, it's one of my latest ones on the list. Uh, it's South Park the movie. Um, I, I adore South Park the movie, um, mostly because... I, I love the show. I, I, I love the satire. I think it's so, so clever. I think it's really um, underrated as, as a, a satirical show. I think a lot of people might watch it on a surface and just think it's quite silly and crass. I just think it's so, so clever over and over again. Um, but the thing that I love about South Park, the movie is clearly um, the the directors, Trey Parker is, is down as the director, um, loves musicals. And we can see that and know that now because of Book of Mormon. Um, but they are very respectful of the genre that they make this film in. It's not a Mickey take of musicals. It's a great musical. There are fantastic songs in it. The song that I've picked out um, as my favourite is the one that was nominated for the Oscar, which is Blaine Canada, um, which I adore. And if I ever met someone who was from Canada, it would be the only thing playing in my head the entire time. Um, it doesn't really bear um, going into the storyline of it. I mean, there's a there's a war waged by parents against Canada because a Canadian duo of comedians has a film with swearing in and it makes all their children swear. So they declare war on Canada. Um, Saddam Hussein and the devil get involved because why wouldn't they? Um, and music happens. Uh, there's a sound like a dying giraffe, which remains one of my favourite sound effects in cinema history. Um, and that's about all you need to know. Uh, it, it's, it's just a, it's a really, really great musical um, without satirising the genre, but very, very, very funny. I'm going to jump in before Ollie does, because I feel like I'm going to calmly say what Ollie is about to say, which is I was worried that I was going to forget certain musicals and certain films this would be on my list had i remembered it 100 percent! oh my god i'm so glad that i included oh. <laughs> isn't it now, brilliant I'm look- though i'm looking at my list and i'm thinking where could i put it in i'm not going to do it and i'm not now going to retrospectively get rid of stuff because if anything comes out of it we're just talking about more films and we're just talking yeah. about musicals, which is fine I totally forgot. And I think the reason why I totally forgot is because I relied on a website called Letterboxd, which is essentially like social media for films. And I clicked on musicals, 
and looked at the films that I'd given film ratings to musicals, South Park wasn't in there. So I just totally forgot or disregarded it. Two quick things before Ivoli needs to jump in and can jump in. One of them, Book of Mormon, is the best discovery I've had recently. Oh and my it's God, a yeah. really spontaneous thing of Ruby was away for the weekend. We needed something to do. It was at the Power State. Uh, I went, sack it. Let's just book tickets. Didn't really know much about it. Best spontaneous decision I've made in a very, very long time. We're going again next year, hopefully, when everything kicks back up again. Um, and I adored it. I saw it in the Palace Theatre so as well. So good. I've seen it twice. I've seen it once. I saw it once in London, not long after it started. Because I remember my first exposure to it was my friend's... And they didn't invite me to do it. It was very sad. But they, uh, all the guy, all the other guys in my uh, musical theatre group at the time performed "Hello," mm. and they did really, really well with it. Um, it really and, surprised me. I was, I was yeah. shocked by the kind of, I mean, inappropriateness of it. Um, and then at the same time, I was shocked by how much I actually like the soundtrack to it. It's yeah, the soundtrack's incredible. It's the, hilarious. The uh, second thing is that. Um, I again of an of an inappropriate age, I will add, because this film was released in 1999. At which yeah. point I was nine. Um, that Christmas, I got South Park everything. I got notebooks. I got everything. I even I got the soundtrack on cassette tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't believe I forgot it. But yeah, yeah. I'm glad you've mentioned it, Holly. Yeah. I'm not going to retrospectively change. Me neither. But I reckon my at least nine. No, at least my number 10 would drop out and it would go quite high up. Yeah. Mm. Oli, do you want to, do you feel the need to say? No, I think you've covered it well. Like, like, because I would have included Book of Mormon. If Book of Mormon had a film adaptation, that'd probably be my number one. Yeah. Um, When we came out of Book of Mormon, I said to Amy, like, I keep thinking about how they would do it as a film. And she said they could never do that as a film. And it's mm. like, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd want them to either. I think they could do. Yeah, I just I was I wasn't surprised by how much I liked it because I I knew what I was going into getting in there. I was surprised because the first time I watched it, me and my dad had gone down to London, and he was like, "Okay, you recommend a show?" And I saw that Book of Mormon was on at the Prince of Wales. I was like, "We need to go to this." Like mm-hmm. I've heard, of it. and I was amazed at how much he enjoyed it. Yeah, because like he was crying with laughter pretty much throughout. Um, we the first time I saw it as well. Elder Cunningham was played by the guy who was Josh Gad's understudy in the original Broadway run, and he was outstanding. And then I took um, Georgia for a, I think I got it either I think I got a ticket for a birthday. Uh, we went to I think it was the Palace mm. in Manchester to see it, and yeah, it was it was just as good. And I, yeah, so that that is easily my favorite musical ever. Like that's gonna be hard to top. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, now I am worried that someone else is gonna mention something that I forgot. Yeah, I'm, I'm breaking but, it now. I, re- I reckon Holly sat there quite content that nothing we say is gonna phase her. Like she's like, no, I considered everything. <laughs> that is, that is a harsh critique of my um, personality, but an accurate one. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait till she drops the number nine and we both realise we forgot something else. No, I, I'm fairly sure that all of my 1950s going oh, is okay. well off your radar and not interesting to you in the slightest. Yeah, there's right. one that I'm confident on mine. But 
All right, Oliver then. Give us your number 10. Okay, this has come up before in discussions left, right and centre. Uh, I believe uh, I've mentioned this before in my Christmas films. So my number 10 is The Nightmare Before Christmas by Henry Selleck. I think one thing I'm going to be referring to constantly throughout this, I think I referred to it in the Disney um, podcast as well, is uh, the teachings of the late, great Howard Ashman, this idea that, that songs are there to inform story. And the example I always end up going to is my second favourite song in this film is What's This? Where Jack sees this winter wonderland for the first time and Danny Elfman gives this beautiful rendition of a typical eclectic musical number and just the wonder in his voice, the childlike naivete in his voice is absolutely stunning. Favourite one, though, and it's going to be a running theme, if there's ever a villain in any particular musical, which a surprising number of them just don't have for some reason, but we do have a villain in this, and it is Oogie Boogie. And his song, where he's torturing Father Christmas, is just, it's sublime, because he's laughing most of the time. This is one where I've actually, I've looked to see if there is a stage show, because whilst I think it would be difficult, I think this would be an incredible stage show. And the most I've found, I've found one guy who's done a performance of, can't remember what the song's called, but it's when um, Jack's having a bit of a crisis of confidence, um, where he's grown, you know, I, Jack, the pumpkin king, have grown so tired of the same old thing. Like he does that entire song in a costume and he's really, really tall, really, really skinny, and his movement is terrifying. And it's like, okay, yeah, this this could be a stage show, which I'd love to see. But as a film, it works perfectly as it is. It does exactly what I need it to from a musical standpoint. I wouldn't mind a bit more dialogue. And I also wish that Danny Elfman had just voiced the character completely, because I think Chris Sarandon does the few speaking roles. The guy who plays Prince Humperdinck in Princess Bride and there's that few speaking roles. You think, why don't you just give him Danny Elfman? I'm sure he could have delivered like the two or three lines of dialogue that Jack had adequately. Um, but yeah, as a musical, it does everything that you'd want a musical to do. So that's my number 10. Is it Jack's Lament, that song? That sounds about right, yeah. Because yeah. he, he's yeah. sad, so. <laughs> I mean, we mentioned this on the Christmas one that like, I, you know, I'm a fan of that as well. Um, again, I'd not necessarily considered it a musical. I think it's because in the same way that I'd kind of discounted the Disney ones, I was like, mm. I'll move them to one side for, the, for this top 10. Okay, so my number 10 is a film that came out in 2013. Might be a little bit of a left field choice, but this is Inside Lewin Davis, which is a Coen Brothers film. So it's set in 1961 and it follows one week in the life of Lewin Davis, played by Oscar Isaac in what happened then to be his breakout role. He plays a folk singer struggling to achieve musical success. Big supporting cast. So you've got Kerry Morgan, John Goodman, Garrett Hedlund, Justin Timberlake, Adam Driver's in there as well. Um, it's got that kind of Coen Brothers sensibility. It's very bleak. We're essentially following an anti-hero here. It's, again, the kind of musical inflection that's gone through things like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I think this is more the mu musical film rather than just that there's, there's music in it. Um, one thing that's been useful for this list specifically because of how recent they are is that I've gone back to what I tweeted about them the first time that I saw them. 
Um, so for this one, I wrote, enjoy the Inside Glowing Davis. Coen Brother films are becoming a genre in and of themselves, and the soundtrack is ace. And specifically, I wanted to mention Please, Mr. Kennedy, which is a film that everyone spoke about when it first came out. It's kind of... Um, it's it's almost like a commentary of when folk music and rock and roll music around about that period of time was being influenced by pop music and almost like session bands and session musicians were coming into it, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that is Adam Driver, Justin Timberlake and Oscar Isaac singing Please Mr. Kennedy. But actually, I think my favourite one from the soundtrack is the opening song, which is Hang Me or Hang Me, which is just sang by Oscar Isaac. And it's quite melancholic it's almost like one note. It's not cheery at all. I mean, the film isn't cheery whatsoever. It does a weird time loop thing at the end. If you've not seen it and you're a fan of Coen Brothers and you're a fan of kind of like the bleak comic sensibility and you'd be interested in to see what they do with the musical, I would recommend Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, and that's from 2013. So that's my number 10. In terms of vibe, is that more Big Lebowski or Fargo? Like on a sliding scale? Neither. It's more like a serious man. Yes. Uh, Okay. Whereas Big Lebowski has a lot of kind of slapsticky, funny moments, and Fargo has the kind of physical comedy moments. This is more like, let's just watch a folk singer try and survive in this world and see what their struggle is in their everyday kind of kind of every week. And yeah, it's it's. I think. There are some hit and miss songs on the soundtrack. There's some stuff with Stark Sands that I'm not particularly a fan of and some stuff sung by Kerry Morgan. I think all the Oscar Isaac ones hit it quite well. Uh, there's one as well called Fairly Well, which is, I think, Dink's song that comes up quite a bit as well. Uh, but yeah, so that's my number 10. So Oliver, number nine, please. Um, we've brought it up. It's Rock of Ages. This is, looking at this, other than one, you could maybe argue... Um, this is the only proper jukebox musical I've got on there, um, whereby for the, for the uninitiated, a jukebox musical being that the songs already exist as songs in pop culture and they're kind of cobbled together in order to fit a narrative. And the jukebox musical, other than, um, other than Our House, I think most, and We Will Rock You, which are probably the two biggest, biggest examples, to be fair. but um, I find that jukebox musicals might suffer if you're limiting yourself to one particular artist because for them, unless you're doing it about that particular artist in some capacity, um, but Rock of Ages, I just remember being a lot of fun to watch. I remember watching it thinking, this is going to be terrible, but I like rock music, especially the kind of rock music that they've got in there. So maybe I'm going to enjoy this. and. I was really blown away by how how much people seem to be trying, even though there are some some big names in this. So the two leads, and quite this is the this is the aspect that I do love. The two leads are, as far as I'm aware, quite unknown actors. Um, they're not particularly big names, but then surrounding that, you've got Alec Baldwin, you've got Russell Brand, you've got Catherine Zeta Jones, you've got Tom Cruise. You know, there's some really big names in there, and every single one of the, especially the people I've just named. They're really, really trying. Tom Cruise as like this god of rock who is so aware that he is the god of rock is arguably one of his best cast roles because he already thinks he's a god. But him singing Pour Some Sugar On Me is a lot of fun. And I was like, rock on Tom Cruise, you go. 
Catherine Zeta-Jones is this conservative uh, figure who wants to ban rock music and put it under disrepute. Um, and she has, there's a really fun duet where her group are singing, we're not going to take it. Meanwhile, there's a counterpoint against them of, we built this city on rock and roll. There's two groups uh, protesting against each other. And that is great as well. Um, what was the, uh, hit me with your best shot as well that she sings and really dances it. She brings out the Chicago in this. But my favorite song, By a Country Mile, <laughs> is I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore, as sung by Alec Baldwin and Russell Brandt. Oh, Sing, singing it as a duet of love to one another. Because for context, Alec Baldwin is the scruffiest looking bar manager and he looked like he's permanently drunk. And Russell Brand is playing this roadie guy who's meant to be brummy and his accent's terrible. And they're both just really scruffy um, individuals. You know, you're kind of stereotypical metalhead. They look like they haven't washed in years and they're wearing flannel shirts and gig t-shirts and overly faded ripped jeans. And they're singing this gorgeous duet of love to each other. And that, that weird juxtaposition. I remember the first, when the first few notes of the song started playing and they're like gazing into each other's eyes. I just burst, in, I just burst out laughing because it was, it was such, and they sang it so sincerely and so sweetly. And the harmonies are great. And I just, I had an absolute blast with this. It was, it was far, it was much more fun than I think it had any right to be. Uh, and I'm aware that if you look at it objectively, it's it's going to be it's going to be trash. But th this is a proper good guilty pleasure musical, I think. If you look like, and a lot of people will be angry now. It's like, well, Abba's our guilty pleasure musical, yeah. And it's my job to make you feel guilty for it. If you want to make me feel guilty for Rock of Ages, that's the price I've got to pay for thinking that Mamma Mia is terrible. I I accept that. But it, if you like that particular genre of music. I don't see how you don't enjoy this because it's it incorporates them quite naturally and it, it's a really really funny show so yeah so as i mentioned this probably would have made my top 10 i think there was probably yeah. a fight between that and inside Lone davis had i watched rock of ages again hmm. i remember enjoying it when i went to go and see it at the cinema my reservations about it are russell brand's terrible accent and he's from england and he can't yeah. do an english accent um the whole thing about journeys don't stop believing, and this isn't anything to do with the, the film, uh, the film itself. But there was that really weird period of time where I think John McEldry covered it on X Factor, and then Glee did it, and then everyone's doing it, and everyone's, and then it was latched onto the end of this, and it was just like, go put that song to bed. Journey, you've got better yeah. songs than you know than that. Yeah, um, admittedly. My favourite song from this, kind of two of them. I really like Sister Christian that they do towards the beginning, um, yeah. which is part of a medley. But Shadows of the Night and Harden My Heart with Mary J. Blige and Juliana Hoff, I think is great. And I, yeah. I really like that middle bit to it. Um, I cannot abide Russell Brand in this film. And I think that's, really, that, that's why I've kind of shoved it, it to one side. Of it. Yeah, he's very Marmite, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. just what he's like in real life anyway. I don't particularly love Russell Brand, but as a kind of washed out up himself a little bit roadie. I think he's perfectly cast. And well, like admittedly, those... admittedly, I do think Alec Baldwin is great. Alec Baldwin. Like, this, it, like, whenever you see Alec Baldwin, he's usually so smooth and in a suit, like even when there's no call for him to be in a suit. And it's just, 
you see him as this slob and it's a breath and he's yeah he's just having having fun with it yeah yeah you love seeing actors like that's i think that's why um there's certain actors who like and alec baldwin doesn't fit into this because he is actually quite a good actor but there's certain actors who in terms of their chops are they don't have the biggest acting range but they just have such a blast with every performance they do that you can't help but love it and alec baldwin in this and tom cruise as well tom cruise is clearly having the time of his life in this and and it shows and he's just dead confident and be, like he's almost caricaturing himself, which I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he is. And just, yeah, that's hilarious. He's not taking himself too seriously at all. Exactly. Yeah. He's not like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my number nine going a year after Inside Lewin Davis from 2014 is Jersey Boys. So we're still talking on jukebox musical here. So this was directed and produced by Clint Eastwood based on the 2005 Tony Award winning jukebox musical of the same name. And it essentially tells the story of uh, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Now, I was kind of aware of Frankie Valli. I'd heard things like um, Can't Take My Eyes Off You. But with it just being a musical, I thought, yeah, I'll go and watch it. It is essentially Goodfellas with songs. And I think that is just the narrative of the Jersey Boys story. There's a lot of stuff into um, organised crime. And there's even some stuff to do with loan sharks and Frankie Valley owing people money and him just touring relentlessly just so he could pay all these people off. The relationship that he's got with his daughter and his wife, them constantly being on the road, them basically going from being teenagers to men on the road and while they were touring. Again, a tweet from the time I just put, rather enjoyed Jersey Boys despite it being overly long in places. That is the kind of general critical um response that it had is that the music was good the performances are good but it is a bit too long what i really like when films like this do and you know rent is something that does it as well um is they've got the cast back from the original broadway production so um a guy called john lloyd young playing frankie valley who hits frankie valley's high notes as perfectly as frankie valley could do um, I also think Vincent Piazza as Tommy DeVito is a really fantastic performance as well. And there were some rumblings as to whether or not he was going to make his way into like best supporting actor category. Obviously, he didn't end up doing that. Um, Christopher Walken's in there as well. So again, it, to me, it's essentially Goodfellas with songs. So if you're interested in something like mobsters and gangsters and actually like a musical, it's quite a good mesh of the two. We are talking Frankie Valli's back catalogue here. So a couple of songs just to come out are you know, Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man. Um, the one that I really like is Working My Way Back to You, but you can't help but enjoy Can't Take My Eyes Off You because that's the kind of timeless, ballady type one. Um, so, yeah, that's my number nine. I didn't realise that was a film because I love Jersey Boys. Did you not, have you not seen it? No, I've seen the stage show. I didn't. I had no idea that it was a film at yeah. all. And I remember, like... I remember going to see it with my nana because my nana was like, oh, I love Sherry, you know, what a night. And then they're just dropping F-bombs left, right and centre. And my nana's there like, because <laughs> she's, a, she's, a, she's a proper Christian girl, is my nana. But um, yeah. Sorry that I've not made it up. There you go. Yeah, no, that's I believe you. Like, I'm, that's something I'm going to have to watch because I, I absolutely Oops. love. I mean, t- to be fair, though, I think the thing that really blew me away about the stage show is that it is them playing the instruments. And it is them yeah, performing. Enough, yeah. It is them performing as Frankie Valley and uh, and the rest of the band and the Jersey Boys. But um, 
I mean, what, like, I enjoy, what I enjoyed with it is with it being, you know, directed by Clint Eastwood, so obviously it's kind of got the chops there as well, mm. that they didn't try and cast anybody like, oh, we're doing this film about Frankie Valley, let's get someone really famous to do it. It's like you've trusted the guy who really did it well in the Tony Award winning stage show, so let's yeah. get him back to do it again. But yeah, it's a good one. Uh, okay, Holly, you're number nine then. Yes, so I'm, I'm veering into my golden age of Hollywood territory now, so I'm not sure if you will have seen some of the films that are coming up, um, but my number nine is Calamity Jane. Okay. Um, I, <laughs> Ollie's laughing his head off. Um, I love Doris Day. I think Doris Day in absolutely everything, and I've seen some shocking, awful films with Doris Day in. I've got like a giant Doris Day box set, and 90% of it is absolute garbage but the one thing you can always say is that she is brilliant she's beautiful she's luminous i love her voice um i she has a sincerity which is very cheesy but totally believable to me um and in calamity jane i think it's at its height um she uh the well the the storyline is that calamity is uh uh a woman uh, living in a, a frontier town. Uh, she's she's hard. She fights. Uh, she dresses like a man, um, but she's in love with a local sheriff who's got no time for her whatsoever. Um, and to try and impress him, she gets a, an actress from the big city, from Chicago, to come to their little town to perform. Um, but instead of actually getting the actress, she gets the actress's dresser her um, assistant who's waiting for her big um, break on stage and pretends to be the actress in front of um, Kalam. So uh, then brings her back to the frontier town and they have to pretend that she's actually this real actress. And of course the sheriff falls in love with the actress and Calamity is then jealous. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously cliched and silly. Um, there's a lot been written about it being a proto-lesbian musical. There's a song called uh, A Woman's Touch, where the two of them are like running around their house decorating it like they're nesting, which is very cute. Um, but I, I, I just love it. It's incredibly innocent and sweet. The songs are great. Doris Day is funny and sexy and cool and, and wonderful in it. Um, my favourite song is probably the worst song in the musical. Um, uh, the Black Hills of Dakota is a lovely song and that's really nice. Um, Whip Crack Away is the opening song and that's great and Doris Day really hits it. Um, everyone loves um, My Secret Love, which is her big number near the end, which is really good as well. But my favourite song is uh, My Love is Higher Than a Hawk, which the... Uh, male lead Howard Keel sings um, and I just love it because his voice is ridiculously low and the whole song is just really funny he's a great singer it's not a Pierce Brosnan moment um, but it just because his voice is so deep I just can't help but laugh when when I watch the song um, yeah it, it's it's a real sweet Sunday afternoon watch with your nan film which I did and is why I love Same. it. <laughs> The only oh, song I could not, not seen, seen it. No. The only song I remember is 
it probably isn't even the title, you'll correct me on the title, but the opening lyric is, I just came back from the Windy City, the Windy City is mighty pretty. Oh, the Windy City, yeah. Yeah, the Windy City, that's the one I can remember, and she's kind of like hoedowing yeah. with everyone. But ain't got what we got. Yeah, but the, the pervading, and I remember it being hilarious, because there's the scene where um, they've addressed how she dresses in order to impress, and, and they've got her in this lovely dress, and she's like kind of getting ready and coming over the field and there's like this whimsical music playing and the actress is like, oh, I can't wait for him. And she walks through the door and she's just caked in mud because she's fallen over at some point and she's just got, a, her face is probably screwed up like, I fell over in the river and she's just like this dress and her entire look is just completely ruined and it's like, this is why I don't wear a dress. If I was wearing dungarees right now, I'd be fine. Like, there is... I, I'm not going to try and ascribe a feminist agenda onto Calamity Jane, mm. but there, there is quite a nice moment that the the actress and Calamity become friends, even though there's a rivalry between them. Mm. And the actress tries to help Calamity be more feminine um, by wearing these dresses and, and doing her hair and doing her makeup. But by the end of the film, even though she has kind of had a makeover, towards the end, she's still in her trousers and her shirt and she's still practical and she's still riding around on her horse and saving the day. So mm -hmm. it, it doesn't become, you know, she's all that. Yeah. Um, Who did the music for Calamity Jane? Uh, great question. It is uh, Butolf and Jackson. Right, okay, because uh, it just, it, it is so reminiscent of those, like, Gershwins, or your Cole Porters, or your, ugh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, it's, it's not very Rodgers and Hammerstein. No, no, it, it's actually enjoyable, which is why it's not Rodgers and Hammerstein. I but, have <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein on my list! <laughs> King, King and I, I'm guessing it now. But, um, oh, fair enough. But, um, yeah, like, those classic, every single musical was a comedy of errors, wasn't it? Like every single one was, oh, there's been some mistaken identity and we're going to have to pretend we're someone. Like, my, like Doris crazy Day is the queen of it. Oh, I'm not disputing that. It's just, yeah. like you said, it, like this is a good example of the, just, it's cliched because it, it, it worked for however yeah. long, but it's just, as you're describing the plot, it's like we've heard this however many times and there must be a reason it, it lasted as long as it did because it is really funny every time you see Like Crazy For You is as cliched, but it's so much fun to be in like, oh, he, he's not actually this Hungarian Broadway producer. He's some struggling actor. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so much fun. Yeah, I think this is well before my time and maybe my lack of education in this realm. I um, only know because I've been in some of these things. Like if I'd not been enough. crazy for you and luckily at some point in my life, Nana didn't have um, um, what's it Calamity Jane on in the background as she was moving into a new house which was about it was genuinely about 15 years ago now so I just remember snippets and being like oh this is this is okay <laughs> I uh, so we're going into number eight so I feel like I'm going to bring the tone down now um, now yesterday I said oh spoiler alert yesterday when we did the Christmas films <laughs> top 10 um, I mentioned as part of my number five, the film The Holiday. And I said in my description of the film The Holiday that Jack Black was in two films towards the end of 2006. One of them was The Holiday and one of them was completely different. And just for you two, and I think Ollie, you might understand this more yeah. maybe than Holly does. Yeah, Holly, are you aware of what that is? Holly's muted. She's guessing something, but she's muted. She can't see it. So that 
is the pick of destiny. <laughs> <laughs> now, so my number, where are we? Number eight is Tenacious D, the pick of destiny. That's a which, strong shout. <laughs> it's, but, I mean, if we're all honest, it's an awful film. Like, it's, it's good because we like the music. The fact that they've tried to spring together a 90-minute film around their second album is ridiculous in the first place. But I like the music that much, which is why it's on my list. And I watch the film quite a bit because of the music that's in it. So if you are unaware, this is basically the fictitious story of how Tenacious D got together. And it's written and produced by Jack Black and Kyle Gass. It's directed by uh, Liam Lynch, who is, I'm, I'm sure... Correct me if I'm wrong. Is he the guy who sang that This Is The United States Of Whatever song? Where it just went, this is my United States of whatever. And then it just kept, you know, I'm sure that was him. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it's completely fictitious, set in the 1990s about how they got together and how they found a pick that belonged to Satan and it allowed the users to become rock legends. It's absolutely daft all the way through. It's essentially like a road trip musical just with all the songs from the second album. Like, obviously, the key points on the second album are obviously the titular Pick of Destiny, which literally just starts off going, because it's the pick. And at the time, when we all had a MySpace page, whenever you went on my MySpace page, it was just, because it's the pick. And Amy hated it because she'd always forget that her speakers was on and it was too loud. Um, good Other kind of shout-outs are, Car Chase City, which is just a really good rapid song um, as he's trying to break into this place. And um, I, I might have confused that with another one, Breaking City. Um, Kickapoo, which is from the beginning of the film, which has Meatloaf and Dio in it as featured artists. And Meatloaf playing Jack Black's dad, which is just... And he's just saying, you'll never play music like this. Get into your bedroom. And then he's praying to his Dio poster and then Dio comes out of his poster. Um, and then Beelzebos, because number one, it's a fantastic song towards the end of the film, and number two, it's got Dave Grohl as Satan, and you will know from my pick of documentaries, Foo Fighters, back and forth, love the Foos, so yeah, Dave Grohl gets a, gets one for me on that one. So I don't expect that to pop up on anybody else's list, or any other list of best musicals. To and be fair... Go on. To be fair, it is just because you don't immediately. As soon as you, as soon as I figured out what it was, yeah, I put it on my honourable mentions because I love <laughs> Pick of Death. It's exactly the same reason as I love Rock of Ages. Of course, it's stupid. Of course, the plot makes no sense. Yeah, but it's about metal. Like, of course, it's like it anything else. Yeah, the, uh, isn't is, isn't the pick is either made from the horn of the devil or one of his teeth? Or something like some, that. Yeah, it kind of chips off, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And Dave Grohl giving it his all as the devil. And I think this was around the time Jack Black and Kyle Gass were appearing in a bunch of uh, Foo Fighters music videos. Yeah, they've always been kind of intertwined. Yeah, so they're all, they're in the video for Learn to Fly. They're the um, they're the, like the cleaners who put the drugs in the coffee that ends up making everyone hallucinate. Yeah, I think they're in the video for Monkey Wrench as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, late nineties stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, and just and like you, we mentioned when we did uh, Robin Williams, the idea of ringing up your mates and being like, "Yo, I'm doing something. Do, do this. Do you want to do this? Yeah." Um, Exactly and, and, and yeah, I think this was uh, my, my mate at um, my mate at um, school. This will have, this was his favorite film for a while, just by virtue of it. 
excuse me, having Dave Grohl in it because yeah. he's he is he will fight anyone who claims to be a bigger Foo Fighters fan than him. Like he will he will go to that. And like the number of times we take the mick out of him by being like, oh, there's a news report. Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl's died. Oh and he my genuinely, God. he would genuinely like well, lose his saying, mind. So it's fine. Yeah, he's saying that. Like he he get down there and yeah, yeah. but. Pick a destiny. Yeah, pick a destiny. Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Lovely. And it's just the fact that they've managed to make a concept film out of an album. <laughs> like, yeah, concept it. albums are all that. Like, I've re- I've gone through a few concept albums. It's a bit like, eh, it's, uh, I Let's guess there'd be a, a film someone's actually made a film of a concept album. It's like, yeah, okay. I really like as well the bit towards the end. And uh, when we watched it in the cinema, I was expecting this. Where they bring up tribute. Because obviously tribute is like the most famous Tenacious D song, and you get to a point where like they see the devil and they're like, "Oh, this this is going to be the song that they reference in tribute." And actually, it's a little bit naff. It's definitely not the greatest song you've ever heard. Um, isn't, yeah, isn't, so just, Tim Ro- isn't Tim Robbins in this as well? Um, there's loads of cameos. I'm sure. I swear, yeah. Tim Robbins is the crazy guy who helps them like break into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Probably. Like and he's on yeah. crutches and he's like desperately trying to run away and then the police are just like, dude, just stop. There's so much kind of stuff <laughs> like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's my number eight. Holly, if you want to give us your number eight. Sure. Uh, another 1953, so I've got two in a row. Um, <laughs> buckle up. Uh, it's uh, Howard Hawks's uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Um, so when I was picking my top 10, this came in and out of the list quite a few times, swapping with My Fair Lady. And in the end, I decided, although I admire My Fair Lady more, I enjoy Gentlemen Prefer Blondes more. And so that's why it made it onto the list. Um, I think it's probably famous for being the um, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend um, movie and the original kind of pink dress Marilyn Monroe look which was then taken by Madonna and has been parodied parodied a million times um I love that uh that that dress and that setup for the song wasn't the original um she was supposed to be wearing this like sheer bodysuit covered in diamonds and the uh executives decided it was too racy so right at the last minute they had to raid wardrobe and find something else for her to wear and now it's become completely iconic um the storyline is that uh, marilyn monroe's character is a uh, unashamed gold digger who um, has a a sugar daddy who's worried that when she's on her way to france to uh, perform, she's a singer, she's on a boat, he thinks that she's not going to be faithful to him. So she get, he gets her friend to be her chaperone on the boat, uh, not realizing that the men's uh, Olympic team, the US Olympic team is on the boat, um, and also some other extremely wealthy older gentlemen um, who end up losing diamond tiaras to uh, Marilyn Monroe's character and all sorts of other shenanigans. Um, it is obviously incredibly silly. The gender politics are shocking. There is no moral 
apart from if you're going to be a gold digger, you may as well look like Marilyn Monroe and be honest about it. I think that's the message we get from the film. Um, but the thing I, I really love about it is it's really good fun. And the uh, other female lead uh, is Jane Russell. And I think she absolutely blows uh, Marilyn Monroe out of the water. She's uh, fantastic. She's funny. She's uh, sassy and knows what she wants. Um, she has some great songs. Uh, we all know Marilyn Monroe's version of uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but Jane Russell sings it as well, dressed as Marilyn Monroe as she's impersonating her in a court case it's very silly um but that is fantastic as well and the look on the judge's face as she jumps out of the witness box and starts boogieing um yeah it, it's it's a very very classic of its time of its type golden age of hollywood musical um with these gigantic set pieces um uh very tongue-in-cheek and um highly recommended i think if you want to have a look at a slice of that time of the studio era yeah, definitely. Shenanigans is the one word that I thought of when you were describing the plot. I thought this just spells shenanigans. It's definitely, it's a caper for sure. Yeah, day. that's the yeah. word I was thinking, caper. You don't get, uh, yeah, I've never even heard of that one before, if I'm honest. You, do, you don't get many kind of buddy films which are female buddies mm. too often. Yeah. There is a love story tacked onto this, but it's very obviously tacked on and they clearly don't care much about the love story. It is a buddy comedy between two women and that's just lovely to see whether or not it's about women whose main objective in life is finding and keeping diamond tiaras is another question entirely, but their friendship and their relationship is quite sweet and nice and a little unusual. Good shout. There's another one for the list. Uh, number eight for Oliver, then, please. Um, this is probably the only one I'm confident, and feel free to yay or nay this, um, that I'm confident would be on Holly's list. So I'm not sure of the exact year. I'm very confident it's 1950s. Uh, and it's my favourite classic, like properly classical musical, and that is West Side Story. And West Side Story... Um, well, it just holds a really special place in my heart because West Side Story was the first musical I really opted into. Like, I did a bit of youth theatre when I was a bit younger and it was all like independently produced stuff from a guy in Oldham. Um, but in terms of like established musicals, when I did my first one as a school play, this was the first one I did. And then I watched the film because I think my nana got it me for either a birthday or just got at me, you know, oh, you can research your role, even though in the film it's completely different. Um, but yeah, I just, the film is incredibly ambitious and it really showcases a lot of what's good about the stage version of West Side Story. Like they use camera angles to really make those dances look more impressive than they are. And they're already incredibly impressive. Um, the company I'm with now uh, are quite reluctant to ever touch West Side Story partly because you know you have people of color in there and it's how do you sensitively portray that and this is a company that operates out of cheshire where we are predominantly white caucasian uh, but also forgetting that if we could get around that the dancing in west side story is just so high end and so high energy and so high tempo um it's it's one of those that isn't equal to the stage show and 
there's like there's there's almost a director's cut you could probably get of I take this bit from the stage show, but I take this bit from the film because I really prefer in this uh, their version of America to the stage show because the version in the stage show it's one girl who loves Puerto Rico getting bullied by all the other girls who are like it's way better in America, whereas in the film it's a proper back and forth. The people who love Puerto Rico are given valid points why Puerto Rico is better because it's like there are people here who are incredibly racist to us. Um, you know, having gang warfare and that Romeo and Juliet story set to this music, you know, Bernstein and Sondheim knock this out of the park. This is, this is absolutely incredible. It's not my favorite Sondheim, that will come up later, but it's easily his most iconic. And you just, you just have to hear that. And you're there. You're on the streets of New York with a bunch of rough, tough kids. Um, uh, Maria is a gorgeous song when he's like, um, when he's, when he's heard her name for the first time, he's met her for the first time. Well, my favorite song is Officer Crocky. Just a great fun number to do. And it's actually in quite a weird place in the, um, in the stage show because their leader has just been killed. And then they're like, Oh, here's a jolly song. Whereas in the film, everyone's alive and it's like the high point of everyone. So it makes sense that they're going to do this upbeat number where they're just taking the mick out of society and everything. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's the only really classic one I've got. Um, and I think it's because it is a bit different to like, as much as I am a fan of that plot of, Ooh, comedy of errors, misunderstanding, having, you know, a darker storyline in there like this, where it is Romeo and Juliet effectively, except not quite as dark because they don't both die at the end. <laughs> But um, don't but... spoil it. I'm not <laughs> hey, neither of them could die, or one of them could, or everyone could. Go out and watch it. But um, it's fantastically acted. It's it looks incredible, like, and the acting seems quite ahead of its time because usually in the fifties, acting consisted of this is how I do my this is how I do my you know held back scenes, and this is how I do my emotional scenes. And there's a lot more depth than that to that to emotion in this film. So yeah, I love West Side Story. It's 1961, I think. So oh, okay, creeping it just creeping into the start of yeah, being a bit more naturalistic mm. in the acting, just like the right at the beginning of yeah. Because I mean, I've not seen it. And then for whatever reason, I've just decided to look on my phone now because I thought I'm sure I got. It. it turns out I did buy it on iTunes a while ago. Um, so now I've got no excuse, really. Um, yeah, so it's 1961. Uh, oh, fair enough. And 10 Oscars and broke box office records. Mm. Yeah, there's never a right to, to it. I don't know why. Yeah, I have to admit, Ollie, and, and this, is, this is a terrible thing as a musical fan, I greatly admire Sondheim, but I don't love any of those musicals. They, uh, don't, they don't speak to me on an emotional level they're objectively really really good but i yeah. don't have any on there i think um, i can go on Ollie. i think i can hold my hands up and say that the nostalgia for me comes from it being the first one i like consciously performed in and thought you know what i like this musicals lark i'm gonna i'm gonna keep on doing this and then i remember i got to university and I, like i did this in in like year 12 because i had an attached uh, six form to my um, high school 
And then I got into university and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do musicals. I'm going to go for proper acting, you know, just acting. And I go around the Freshers' Fair and Stage Musical Society say they're doing West Side Story. And I'm like, I'm in. Where do I sign up? Where do I audition? God damn it. I don't want it. I didn't think I wanted to do it, but you've sold me immediately. And I then did seven shows with this one group and made lifelong friends with them effectively. I'm intrigued yeah. to see where Sondheim's going to come back in because Holly mentioned, and it's in a separate conversation, that she's got a musical on her list from 2007, which I assumed was the same one as mine, but then she said it was more critically acclaimed rather than commercially acclaimed. So I don't think it's the same one. And then Ollie has just mentioned that he's got another Sondheim. So I've got Sweeney Todd floating around in my head, but I don't know if that's going to be it and I don't know where that's going to fall. But We'll, we'll save that. Okay, so that was Ollie's number eight, West Side Story. Holly, can we have your number seven, please? Well, we can clear up some of the mystery now. Oh, my right. number seven is my 2007, my, my uh, newest film on my list, and that's Once. Okay, right, right, yes, I have. I okay, really so- like, sorry, just to kind of just interrupt you before you even start. No. I really like Falling Slowly. Oh, it's I've not seen the film. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. If you, I, I suspect you won't enjoy any of my golden age of Hollywood films. But if you're going to take one from my list that you haven't seen, please, please, please watch Once. Um, Once uh, is directed by John Carney. Uh, it's uh, featuring the music of Glenn Hansard and Marquita Iglova. Um, both are professional singers, not actors. The acting is very, uh, very natural. Um, the main characters are guy and girl. We never hear their names. And it's essentially brief encounter. Um, they, they meet on the streets of, uh, this is terrible, it's in Ireland, but I can't remember if it's in Northern Ireland or if it's in the Republic of, I don't know if it's Dublin or Belfast, that's terrible. Please look it up for me, Adam. It says Dublin. Dublin. Whew. Okay, so there, uh, Glenn Hansard's character, Guy, is uh, busking um, and Girl is selling the big issue um, and they just start chatting about music. Um, and after spending a day together chatting about music, sitting in a, a music shop and using the um, piano, um, Guy kind of propositions Girl and Girl is offended and leaves. And the rest of the film is kind of a week of him trying to find her, uh, become friends with her again. Um, and then uh, trying both, both of them to get their lives back on track. Uh, Girl is Czech. She's moved to the UK for a better life for her son and left her husband behind in the Czech Republic. Um, Guy is trying to get his music career moving, but is a busker and uh, his girlfriend left him to move to London. Um, And it's just the two of them very slowly and heartbreakingly kind of falling in love with each other at the same time as realising that they need to stop dreaming and actually move on with their lives which are in very separate directions um it's it's beautifully beautifully underacted it it made me genuinely cry and the music is gorgeous really really lovely and it's obviously professional musicians playing and singing live 
just in a studio for quite a lot of the film. Towards the end of the film, they go to a studio to make an album of the songs they've been making up. Um, and yeah, if you've heard the song already, my favourite one is Falling Slowly. And that song won a Best Original Song at the Oscars as well, which was a, a massive win for a film that cost uh, just over €100,000 to make incredibly shoestring budget um, yeah, it's, a, it's a lovely song and yeah. I've, i just bought it on itunes um because it was four quid so i thought yeah i'll buy it i'll just buy the film yeah. uh so i'll get around to that as soon as i can it's now a musical stage musical it um, is yeah yeah because amy's dad went to watch it and i think he really enjoyed it as well but i don't know if he was aware of the film or whether or not he's kind of just got swept up into the i suppose publicity and you know critical acclaim that that's had it's, okay. it's one of those films that sits on the border between is it just a music film or is it a musical? And I think right. it, it certainly pushes over into musical because even though all of the songs are actually happening and they are musicians and they're playing the songs, they are all about the emotions that they're having in that moment and they're acting through the singing of the song. Um, there's a really lovely song where Girl... Um, is given a, a CD player. She has no way to play music. She doesn't have any money at all. And Guy uh, lends her an old CD player with one of his songs on it that he can't think of the lyrics for. And she just walks to the corner shop listening to it, thinking up lyrics. And it's a really lovely song as she's just like walking to the corner shop in her pyjamas to buy some bread and walking back and just singing the song as she goes along. Um, there are lots of moments like that which feel very realistic, um, but still a, a musical. Good. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, okay, number seven from Oliver then, please. Um, I also get to clarify, because it's Sweeney Todd. <laughs> there <laughs> it we is, go. It is Sweeney Todd at number seven. Um, as discussed uh, throughout Disney, I love a bit of darkness. I'm a fan of the darkness. I love it cutting through and just making me realize that my, my dark, bleak soul is not the worst one out there, effectively. But Sweeney Todd, um, I think the music is outstanding. It, it does a good job of either heightening the darkness or really juxtaposing it, depending on what's happening. I think uh, Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lover is outstanding because Mrs. Lover is such a tricky role to pull off. And... The, the, every time I've seen anyone do it, um, I've been blown away, whether that be my um, friend's amateur production where I saw the, the, the girl who played um, Mrs. Lovett just blew me away. And shockingly, she's now doing bits as, well, not right now, but she's doing bits as a professional actress at this point because she, she's damn good at it. And she was head, head and shoulders the best thing about this production that I saw. Um, just that opening theme, just the violins, just building and building. And then you get the slightly dissonant flute over the top and it creates this atmosphere of dread and despair in this bleak area of London. And the film version, just as an exemplary cast, I've already talked about Helena Bonham Carter. Um, Alan Rickman as Judge Turpin is unbelievable. Fits him down to a T. You've got uh, God. I've forgotten his name. What's the What's the name of the guy who plays uh, Wormtail in Harry Potter? Rafe Spall. Rafe Spall. Timothy Spall. Timothy Spall. Timothy Spall. That's it. As Beadle Bard, just absolutely incredible. But Johnny Depp, because this was in a period of time where 
Tim Burton was probably under a little bit of stick for kind of losing his creative edge a bit. I think this was around the time, this was a similar-ish time to his take on Alice in Wonderland, which I don't think is very good at all. I think a lot of the stuff that you love Tim Burton for just doesn't fit with this and it comes across as a bit tired and one no. But in a film like Sweeney Todd, Tim Burton's a perfect director. And likewise, Johnny Depp just seems a bit try-hard as Willy Wonka. He seems very try-hard as the Mad Hatter, but as Sweeney Todd, he's unbelievable as this incredibly broken man who's pretty much incapable at this point of really getting across any emotion other than the odd look of disgust and the occasional look of gleeful rage as he gets what he wants. And it's a rare example of objectively not a particularly good singer absolutely nailing a vocal part. Because some of the songs I love in this, you've got No Place Like London as the opening. You've got Pretty Women, which is a weirdly beautiful duet between Alan Rickman and Johnny Depp. Uh, but my favourite song is My Friends, which is Johnny Depp literally singing to his razor blades. And he's not got a particularly good singing voice, but it, it's so in tune with what you would want the character to be doing. Because in the stage version, Sweeney Todd has this big booming bassy voice i think johnny depp was thinking well i've got quite a reedy voice anyway and he spent however long in prison so he would sound a bit weak and damaged and his voice sounds quite weak and damaged and it works a hundred thousand times for sweeney todd to the point where if i was auditioning for it i'd be pushing to do it more like that than how it was typically portrayed on stage um yeah, it's just, and it's just so, as bleak as it is, it's just such a fun ride. I do, love a, I do love the odd nihilistic film where everything is dark and sad and we're all going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. And even the innocent children will be dragged into this despair with us. I, I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> I've not seen it in a very long time. And to be honest, I think the only time I actually saw it all the way through was in the cinema when it came out. Uh, my friend's a big fan of it and like epiphany is the one song that i think about a lot and, and like if, I, if someone was to say to you what's your favorite one it would just be epiphany but i think that's through seeing that little bit in the trailer a lot yeah yeah i think I, as with most of these top tens i always say that i just need to go back to it whenever you get time but yeah <laughs> okay my number seven same year a little bit more cheery, I'd say a lot more cheery, uh, is Hairspray. Um, so this is adapted from the John Waters script um, and the 1988 film. And then, but it's it's weirdly kind of between 1988 and 2007, it became a stage musical. And then at that point, they adapted the stage musical rather than just the film from the 80s. Uh Big ensemble cast for this one. So you've got John Travolta, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, second one of his on my list so far. Uh, Amanda Bynes, James Marden, uh, James Marsden, Queen Latifah, Brittany Snow, Zac Efron, Elijah Kelly, Alison Jenny, and Nikki Bolonsky in her debut. Set in 1962, Baltimore, uh, the film follows the, as, as referred to on Wikipedia, as the pleasantly plump teenager Tracy Turnbod. Uh, as she pursues stardom as a dancer on a local TV dance show and rallies against racial segregation. To me, this is just a joyful film. And I think originally when I put my list together, it was lower down. And then I watched the thing that was on Britain's Got Talent recently, where they did a kind of hairspray and Les Mis 
no, it was just hairspray on its own, actually. And it just reminded me of how much I actually quite like it. And we'd seen the film in the cinema. We'd gone and seen the stage play. And, like, you know, songs like Good Morning Baltimore, um, You Can't Stop the Beat, really good, cheery songs. I think, actually, my favourite is one sung by the character Seaweed called Run and Tell That, which I think is really good. It's a, it's quite a good kind of reflection of, at the time, because you've got all these kind of pop songs that you would traditionally get in the 60s, this kind of white whitewashed pop, and then you would get the kind of soul influence of funk music, and that comes through with the character of Seaweed. And I think, actually, what it's doing is it's trying to tackle really serious issues of race, of diversity, of body image especially, things like that, while having a really good soundtrack and actually that kind of justification of conflict of are you going to fight for the right thing or are you actually going to kind of follow the norm? And I think Zac Efron's character of Link Larkin kind of tours the line a little bit because he wants to be the voice of kind of change, but at the same time, he's really worried about his position on this Corny Collins show and he doesn't want to stretch the line too far. And it's a, I think it's actually really good lead in for social commentary for younger audiences where you're looking at things like the dance floor being segregated and Tracy recognises, I think it's either Seaweed or Seaweed's younger sister. And they say like, oh, we're going to dance together. No, no, we can't dance together. You've got to stay on that side. I've got to stay on that side. And actually, you know, begin to tackle those kinds of situations. And the buses as well, which is where Run and Tell, that comes into it. Yeah, so, I mean, that's my number seven. I think everyone's aware of Hairspray. And again, it's kind of a big one. And I, I really enjoyed it. I just thought it was good. And I think it's got a good soundtrack. So that's my number seven. Uh, we'll go into number sixes then. Oliver, if you want to get us started on your number six. Uh, this might be a contentious one in terms of do you class it as a musical? Um, I think if you're willing to class it as a musical, I think you're happy for it to be on a top 10. Uh, I think we talked about this one and it's similar to one that I had in an honorable mention that I discounted. Uh, so Bohemian Rhapsody, I didn't think counted as a musical because when they're singing the songs, it's not, it, it, it's very in the context of here is the band performing the song. Whereas this film released a similar time. I didn't think I'd like this one as much, uh, but it just blew me away. It's Rocket Man. I'm going to have to count it as a musical. Yeah, it's Rocket, Rocket Man was, it really, really blew me away just how good that was. I think we mentioned on the Disney podcast in a negative light, uh, Sing and the way that that, re, uh, the way that that kind of relied on celebrity voices but one massive positive from that that i will give it i remember seeing the end just the ending bit of sing and there's a gorilla who is voiced by taron egerton and he performs i'm still standing on the piano and i just think i remember listening and thinking gee is that eggsy from kingsman doing that and then there's this really weird timeline whereby you get him singing that then you get Kingsman 2, which has, obviously has Taron Egerton, but has Elton John playing a weirdly large role in it. And I almost imagine that Elton was like, you know, you were really good in Sing, sounding like that. And this idea just formulated where Taron Egerton would play a younger Elton John. And absolutely, with every single vocal performance he gives in that particular film, smashing it, smashing it out of the park. I really did not think I would care remotely about the early years of Elton John. 
because I love a lot of Elton John music. I think he does get overlooked a lot because you think of him as the fun piano man who just wrote The Lion King. But he was a he was a very he was a rock music player. You know, you just associate him with the piano. But you get uh, you get songs like Crocodile Rock. You get um, uh, Saturday Night is all right for fighting, and that was the thing that really made me think. You know what? No, this is a musical because when they do Saturday Night in the film. It starts off with him as a kid, and there's choreographed routines going around, and you can imagine a kid running around on stage, then going off stage, and then Young Elton John comes on, and then they do a dance. I would, I would love to see this as a stage show. I'd be really interested to see how they did this as a stage show with a lot of the quick changes, with a, a lot of the with a lot of the situations, and with it ending on "I'm Still Standing" when he's like kind of killed off his demons a little bit. It's it was a surprisingly coherent musical given the specific time frame they were talking about and I just I Taron Egerton's performance is sensational and I think the only reason we don't talk about it in the same regard as Rami Malek's uh, as Freddie is because Freddie is a bit more revered I think Rami Malek's performance is probably objectively a little bit better but I had a lot more fun watching Taron Egerton as Elton John and I think Taron Egerton was kind of almost hindered by the fact that he had a better supporting cast around him. The characters around uh, Elton in Rocketman were better. Bryce Dallas Howard playing his mum does a fantastic job. I often forgot that was Bryce Dallas Howard. Jamie Bell as Bernie is really good and their relationship is incredibly sweet. And yeah, just I really had fun with that film because it was, it, they, they clearly played it as this moment of time, this this period of time for Elton John, because he was, you know, completely off it on whatever he was addicted to at the time, it was just a blur for him. It was a fever dream. So we're going to make the film look like a fever dream. And I'm imagining that on stage and thinking, that'd be great. And I would, I'd love to be in that. I had a lot of fun with that, with um, uh, Rocket Man. I do prefer it a lot to Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, definitely. I think Bohemian Rhapsody, I think we might have talked about this, but I think Bohemian Rhapsody without Rami Malek's performance is a distinctly average film. Yeah, and I think for me, I consider it a musical. And this is nothing against Bohemian Rhapsody or anything like that, or even a film called um, Get On Up that Chadwick Boseman starred as James Browning. Mm. You've chosen there not to have the actor sing, which is fine, but you've essentially just dubbed over scenes with the music from the actual band or the artist or whatever and to me i have much more respect for a musical where you're going to get somebody like taron edgerton learning singing re-recording the entire back catalogue of elton john songs putting his own spin on it because for me it just then it seems more authentic yeah yeah and yeah and he does he does such a good job of it as well like elton has absolutely, like, and fair enough, but he's absolutely sung Taron's praise. He said, I've, he said, I can't think of any higher praise from Elton John than this. I've not, like, I've not heard anyone else sing them better. Yeah. Like, this is the best, other, other than, you know, other than me, this is the best person I've ever heard sing my songs. I think he's absolutely incredible, which, and he is, he, like, he's, he's really showed off. His, I think he's, He's looked at Kingsman and he's refused to let himself be pigeonholed into that kind of lovable uh, rogue uh, lead male type. He's been like, no, I'm going to give you some serious acting chops here. And I think he's, I think he's done really good by himself, Tarot. I'm, uh, I'm going to leave it for now. 
Okay. We, we may come back to uh, Well, might we? Okay. Yeah. We might. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, okay. My number six is from 2016. It's a film that I have a strange relationship with, and it's a film that Amy, my wife, has an even stranger relationship with my relationship with this film, um, and it's La La Land. Now, the reason for this is because, and again, just to use tweets as an example, after we watched it, I tweeted, stop buying into the hype, La La Land was good, catchy soundtrack and incredibly versatile performances. Then the day later, I tweeted, I'll never learn that sometimes you just need to let a film simmer. I can't stop humming, La La Land won't let you be critical about it. And then at that point, I went back and watched it again. Now, admittedly, I went into this thinking, just flicked my pen, um, that it was going to be the greatest musical that I'd ever seen. And similar to when we were talking about Lion King and we were talking about how Beyonce had to do Spirit and everyone was talking about the Beyonce song and what was this big song going to be, I'd gone into La La Land thinking this big song, this City of Stars song that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are going to sing together is supposed to be amazing. And then when the scene happened in the film, I was like, oh, well, that was a fine song. That was okay. And, and it's so indulgent that I think the first time I watched it, I got caught up in its self-indulgence in that it was like, do you remember all those musicals from the past? Well, here's, here's one now and we're just going to throw back to this and they're all going to be swishing the dresses everywhere and there's going to be colours everywhere. And co- you know, The one scene, which I love for its choreography and I use for mise-en-scene in film studies, but... I cannot stand just of what it means in, in continuity. And I think one of the students mentioned it this year is when they sing a lovely night. So they end up walking away together from this house and they're walking up the, this, this street and they both start singing and that's fine. But then Emma Stone sits down and for whatever reason, she takes her shoes off and then she goes into a bag and she pulls out some tap shoes and then she puts the tap shoes on for no reason whatsoever and then coincidentally, they're the same tap shoes that Ryan Gosling's wearing. And that's because right now we're going to start dancing because we're in the middle of this song. For no narrative purpose whatsoever, does she take her shoes off? It's not like, oh, I've just stood in dog dirt and I need to get rid and I've got spare shoes in my bag. It's just, I'm aware that, Ryan, you're going to need me to dance in a second. So I'm just going to sit down and swap my shoes and then we'll dance. Um, in terms of songs, I do think City of Stars is a good song once you've let it grow on for a little bit. Start a Fire, sung by John Legend, is an absolute banger. And the instrumental score, specifically Epilogue from Justin Hurwitz, who also did the music for Whiplash, is fantastic. Because again, this is directed by Damien Chazelle, who directed Whiplash. And yeah, so I've just realised that I've gone straight into the film. I'm not going to give any preamble, but it's Ryan Gosling um, and Emma Stone. I'm sure everyone's aware of it. Um, also, broken record now, Pasek and Paul, fantastic songwriters. Ollie, I'm covering your face. Shut it. Um, they, are, they wrote the music for Dear Evan Hansen, The Greatest Showman, and Speechless from the new Aladdin soundtrack, which is fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, oh, oh, vomiting. You was upset about Speechless. I've not heard it. Oh, you that, covered the wrong person. What a disgusting discography. That's <laughs> vile. That is so... Seriously, have you listened to the Day Evan Hansen soundtrack? Yes, because I've got friends who make me listen to it. Right, or try and make me listen. It's just everyone. Everyone sings like this throughout all of the musical numbers. 
and that's a massive problem with La La Land as well. Like everyone sings. That it's not diehard. Everyone sings. <laughs> everyone sings like they're trying not to disturb their neighbours in the studio next to them. It's so distracting. And my main problem with La La Land is that the one song where I was like, yes, is meant to be the devil. That song is meant to be. Yeah, yeah. That was, evil. to be honest, yeah. It was the point where. Because Ryan Gosling is, is, is like a failing jazz musician and he just wants to start his own club and he loves jazz. And I, I, at one point, actually, I even tweeted, I wish I'd speak to my students about films in the way that Ryan Gosling talks about jazz in La La Land because it's the only thing he talks about all the way through mm. it. Jazz, do you like jazz? Do you like jazz? We're going to go and listen. Right. So then we get to a point where just to make money, and it's good money, like don't it's turn in, your it's nose It's incredible up. money, yeah. yeah. He goes and is a session musician and then a touring keyboardist or pianist for John Legend's band. But then all of a sudden, because he's using like not a non-standard keyboard and it's kind of like... synth. Ooh, it's the devil. It's like Emma Stone just becomes isolated and the audience is like, what has he become? He's mm. sold out. But it's a good song. It's Let an it absolute banger of a song. And it's the only song sung by someone who can actually goddamn sing because John Legend has a voice like butter and yes, it, does, the fair. song the song is garb like they deliberately made the lyrics as vapid as possible fine but i don't think any of the other like the other lyrics are almost like intentionally vague to the point of there being too much subtext I just, I, I was really disappointed with La La Land personally when I, I, I stopped watching it i understand it this where? is the thing and actually, really, uh, it probably should be further down my list. But again, I have these songs on hard rotation. Mm. And I think that's the issue. I do think the acting performances are incredible. I love the big blow-up argument between Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. I think that's incredible. I think this was, this was the film where Emma Stone was like, again, similar to what Taron Egerton did with um, Rocketman. This was Emma Stone standing up and making people take notice of her in terms of her acting chops. No, I'm not just that cutesy girl next door, like alternative girl from Easy A and Superbad. I'm a serious actor and you will notice me. But I think I would have preferred Ryan Gosling winning over Emma Stone. Yes, I think Ryan Gosling's... Yeah, I think his performance is better. I think his is a... Because Ryan Gosling... But I think he's just a better actor. I feel like the whole end sequence it's not even the end sequence the audition sequence the fools who dream mm. that is emma stone's is oscar yeah oscar yeah we don't need that let it let it be subtler than it, it currently is mm. it feels ryan like Gos- ryan Gosling should have won for drive so yeah he should have oh yeah. well yeah and it feels like the mu- like the weird musical world that they're in where they do take off their shoes at some point and they're all dancing across it feels like they kind of give up on that premise nearly halfway through the film it kind yeah. it kind of it kind of stops being it almost stops being a musical once john legend sings his song and then beyond that like i think there's a dance in the in the in the um, observatory maybe i don't know when oh, that the is planetarium in the planetarium that. sorry but i don't know whether that's before or after this gig but like that's the the big musical thing, to, and it's just like okay, yeah, they're on some wires. I must and admit, if we're talking about indulgence, when it first started, and I'm I'm not a fan of when films do this, where they give you the old kind of Universal logo, 
Because yeah. it's like, we're either set in an old time or we're throwing you back to something. From we're the- doing it like the good old days. And I'm just, give over. And mm. then the whole, like, another day in the sun where it's all like, we're going to just bombard you with colour and music and all mm. this stuff now. And more people singing. Musical. Mm. And more yeah. people singing like they're not disrupting people who are next to them. Because, and we're singing in hushed tones. We don't want to get too loud because we do not want to be rude. Like, shut up. Just sing up. Dynamics, darling. Come on. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I've watched it more times, and I, I think I'm. Gr- it's growing on me. Mm. But I think it's the songs that like, I like. the mold in Ollie's rent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, great, but I mean, he's only renting here. that. I own La La Land. It was one of the first four K Blu-rays that I bought. But yeah, what a waste. So I can't, I can't comment on La La Land. So it wasn't because it was bad that I stopped watching it. I, I go through phases of having enough concentration for different types of media. And when I started watching that, I just didn't have concentration for films. So I watched like the first 15 minutes and I was like, nah, I'm going back to my computer games. I must admit, it's one of those... And I never want like, to go back to it. If I'm doing work, I'll put it on because it's nice to have on in the background. In the same way, like I'll, I'll put like, I don't know, Foo Fighters Live on. You know, yeah. something like that. It's nothing that I'm going to really pay attention to anymore because I've seen it and I've done that. And blah, 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 blah. Right. Let's round off this top five, this first five. Holly, you're number six. Little shop, little shop of horrors. I love it so much. It's a fantastic, fantastic film. And since we've just finished filming the um, recording, sorry, the Disney um, podcast, it's a good one to include because this is uh Menken and uh I'm gonna say his name wrong Ash Ashman um and uh Ashman wrote it um based on the old kind of b-movie horror the little shop of horrors um and turned it into this musical which is so wonderful and influenced so much of the Disney renaissance um there's a song in little shop of horrors called somewhere that's green which is kind of Audrey's uh, I want song. She she lives in this. Um, she lives on Skid Row. She's very poor. Uh, nobody has any opportunities, and she's thinking about going to live in the suburbs and why she wants that. And that's so similar to Ariel's song in The Little Mermaid that they called. Um, uh, oh, oh, what's what's Ariel's I want song? Uh, Part of your world. Part of your world. Thank you. Um, they nicknamed that somewhere that's dry when they were writing it, because um, it's so similar to Somewhere That's Green. Um, the, the story of Little Shop of Horrors is so weird and convoluted, but essentially uh, there's a flower shop in this really rundown part of the city. Um, and we follow the people who work in the flower shop as uh, one of them discovers a plant, a very unusual plant. Um, and this plant turns around the fortunes of Mushkin's flower shop because they put the plant in the window and people come to see it but the plant has a terrible secret and that is that it lives off human blood so our main character starts by feeding the plant his own blood um, until it gets too big to just kind of lick blood off the end of his finger it wants an actual body um, and the uh, musical gets pretty dark from there. Um, it's it's wonderful. The music is great. Uh, we talked about Hercules um, at length on our Disney podcast. And um, I think this 
uh, does a really great job of having that kind of Greek chorus um, without the Greek influence, obviously, but uh, a chorus that kind of follow the characters around, join in with some of the main songs. Um, it's it's got a really fun aesthetic. Uh, there are lots of great comedic actors in it. My highlight is um, Steve Martin. My favourite song in the um, in the whole show is Dentist, which is Steve Martin's um, horrible, abusive boyfriend. Um, the discovery that he's actually a dentist and he became a dentist because he's a sadist and his mum suggested that the best job for a sadist would be a dentist. Um, that's a great song. And since my mum's a dental nurse, um, it's a song that I bring up quite often when she's talking about her colleagues. Um, it's also a song I really love to do at karaoke. It's a great one. Um, the original ending was so bleak. Uh, there are 23 minutes that the director is Frank Oz, who I love, um, and he made this really bleak ending to fit with the the um, uh, original film, um, where basically everyone dies and the entire um, world is taken over by these alien blood-sucking plants, um, and it didn't test well. So they had to remake the ending and just put a kind of ish happy ending onto the end, but they have actually um, remastered the ending and you can see it now because it was originally only in black and white and only kind of half produced. Um, I've not seen it and I really want to watch it. You have Ollie. Oh, I really want to watch it because I'm sure it's fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Little Shop of Horrors, then that is also a really fantastic alternative musical um, with just great numbers. The, um, the actress who plays Audrey um, I will find her name. Her singing voice is absolutely fantastic. Alan Green. Sounds good. Alan Green, yeah? Sounds right. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and the numbers, again, for an alternative musical, sometimes they are laughing at the genre, and this isn't. It's a proper musical with great, great songs. So... I'm just reading about it now. So Frank Oz directed it. Rick Moranis is in it. And it's a rock and Motan infused musical with Steve Martin, John Candy and Bill Murray in hilarious cameo roles. I don't know why I've not seen this. You would absolutely love this it. This sounds right up my street. It's, it's hysterical. It's really okay. good. Add that to the list. I'll sleep one day. <laughs> And that's it for part one of this top ten. We'll be back on Christmas Day for part two and our picks from five to one. You can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other and I'll see you next time.